Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicles Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Moira O'Neill and joining me on the show today are my colleagues Leonora Walters and Kate Bealey. We're also delighted to have Investors Chronicles economist Chris Dillo on the telephone. Hi Chris. Hello. Hello. In today's show we're going to discuss the top funds and trust stories of 2015 and we'll also look at the best performing funds and trusts of the year. And um, Chris is going to give us his Christmas wish list for new financial products and he'll also help us explain how to improve a substantial portfolio with 100 holdings or so. But first, December is traditionally the month in which we are bombarded with financial forecasts for the year ahead. And in this week's bumper Christmas issue, we're giving lots and lots of forecasts and including the views of many fund managers from the Investors Chronicles top 100 funds. You can go and read those in the magazine. I do advise it. They're really interesting. But Chris, are forecasts reliable? You've you've looked into this, haven't you? Yeah, um, sadly not. Um, And it's, it's not just in economics that this is the case. I mean, this time a year ago, um, economists over-predicted inflation this year. And what they tend to do is they tend to mis-predict um, recessions. Recessions are, to a very large extent, unpredictable. And that's been the case ever since we started looking at, at, at the subject. So it's not just a product of the financial crisis of 2008-2009. And it's not just economists who get things wrong. And you think back a year ago... Nobody was predicting that the Tories would win an outright majority at the general election. Nobody was predicting Jeremy Corbyn would become Labour leader. Nobody was predicting that Chelsea would be involved in a relegation scrap this season. So it seems to be that in pretty much anything, forecasts are prone to be wildly wrong. But we love making them. Why do we what, you know, want to read them? Why are we interested? We all kind of know that we're probably not going to get it right, but it's still a really interesting, exciting sort of process to think about the year ahead and what might happen, isn't it? Yeah. Well, th- this is pretty much as old as the human race. I mean, we have always wanted soothsayers and witch doctors <laughs> to give us the, the illusion of predictability and the false comfort that... We, we can predict the future. But the fact is that we can't. And a big reason for this is simply that what happens in the future depends upon complex interactions between people, the outcomes of which can't be predicted. So, so it, I, I suspect that the future is inherently unpredictable. And it's also the case that forecast errors arise from many cognitive biases. But even if we were to cleanse ourselves of those biases, um, it would still be the case that the future is to a large extent unpredictable. And I think what people should do uh, is, rather than rely upon forecasts, they should rely upon rules which have a great track record of working. Uh So Uh, here we're we're talking about looking to the past, aren't we? um, and, um, And looking for patterns, which you're very, very good at. Oh, thank you. um, The only rule I use is the sell in May, buy on on Halloween Mm. rule. The only forecast that that is based on is the assumption that the past will, the future will on average resemble the past, you know, which is probably as weak an assumption as as one can make. Um, But I, I really don't think one need to worry about well, where the, where the FTSE is going. And what most of us do is just have 
uh, a weight in inequities and a weight in, in safe assets that reflects our attitude to risk. And it would be very silly to, to base one's asset allocation upon a precise forecast. So how is buying on Halloween working out for you so far, Chris? It's done so, all right, yes. So far, um, not, too, not too great. The, the, the FTSE 100 was about 6,350 on Halloween. It's around 6,100 now. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've still got, what, four and a half months to go and that's quite a quite a, a long time to to recoup what is quite a small loss mm-hmm. so, so i'm by no means panicking no that sounds and, good and, and the sell in may saved me from quite a substantial loss all ah, right so your quid's in then so it's all working well, out nicely we'll sort of be looking forward but now let's look to the past because you know this is the time of year when we look back at the top stories of the year so far and kate has been looking at the top fun stories what have been your favorites kate um yeah well, obviously there's been there's been a lot to choose from um <laughs> so in terms of active funds I had a look at the ongoing battle at the Investment Association, the trade body um, for open-ended funds. So former chief executive Daniel Godfrey had been trying to persuade members to reform certain elements, particularly around fee transparency. But that didn't go well for him and he ended up ousted by some some fund houses who were very unkeen on what he was proposing. Um, also, Alliance Trust, a major fight between activist shareholder Elliott advisors and the board. Um, Elliot was very unhappy about performance, uh, the high discount to NAV and about losses, Alliance Trust subsidiaries. In April, there was a kind of brief compromise and um, Alliance Trust added two of uh, the board members that Elliot wanted. But then in October, the trust announced that Catherine Garrett Cox was stepping down and it looks like it might continue to be slightly challenging there. Um, then in kind of happier news, I guess, Woodford, Neil Woodford, um, who left Investigo Perpetual in 2014, and set up his new fund. Um, now, by the end of the year, that that fund was already kind of topping its topping its sector, and by August it had reached August two thousand fifteen. It had reached six point seven billion, so a similar size to the old, very successful fund he ran. Also, this year he launched New Trust Patient Capital, and demand has been so high for that that the IPO was increased from five hundred to eight hundred million, making it the largest ever UK domiciled investment company IPO. And then just in individual trust news, we had bad times for BlackRock World Mining. It was already forced to write down securities in its Marampa mine. And that, those had to be written off when London mining collapsed at the end of last year. It was quite a high profile news story at the time. And then this year it was also hit with exposure to a gold mine of Banro and had to reduce the value of that investment. Also, either a bad or a good time, I guess, depending on what you think about Murray International, um, that trust fell to a discount for the first time in five years um, on the back of quite poor results. But, I mean, Manager Bruce Tower has a very good reputation, so I guess some people might be seeing that as an opportunity. And again, good and bad times for Scottish Mortgage. It had a really strong performance record and has been overwhelmed with demand, so it issued new shares, but it did say in its latest results it's got concerns over the future of its dividend. Its revenue reserves are kind of dwindling and it has warned they might have to cut that in the future. And then a really good time for Biotech Growth Trust, um, which turned 10 in 2015 and is the best performing investment trust over that period. And even after the sell-off, in fact, it's still looking like the best. Oh. And then, so moving on to passive, a lot of the stories in passive, particularly around ETFs, were 
obviously around the launches of kind of new products and new trends. And currency hedging has been a major theme, particularly given QE and the weaker yen and the weaker euro. Um, there were there were a lot of launches around that, and arguably that that might have played out now. So maybe it's a little bit of a horse stable door thing, um, but that was that was a big concentration of launches, and we had a couple of very high profile, quite interesting niche products which we analysed. One the, the first Indian fixed income product, a curry bond, um, and also a cyber security ETF which was launched on the back of a massively popular one in the US. So that'll be interesting to keep an eye on. And also, interestingly, low volatility ETFs, which have been a big theme in in factor-based ETF investing. We had a look at the market crash in the summer and whether those had kind of proved their worth. And interestingly, they did prove, prove their metal. They really held up against, you know, normal ETFs or their kind of vanilla counterparts. So maybe that goes to show that, the, you know, the hype surrounding those was worth it. And then we had a look at some sectors likely to be affected by a US rate rise, which has now happened. So we'll see if we'll see if these predictions, I guess, were right. <laughs> and those were emerging market debt and equity funds and fixed income ETFs, which we've also talked about quite a bit because there's been a lot of discussion about whether there are enough of those in the market and, and how they've been performing also in the magazine, we had to look at ETF price cuts, which I won't run through, but we've included those in this piece. So it seems like there's been a lot of positive innovation with a, with a few uh, negative stories and also some, some nice positive active fund stories over the year. Decent year in the funds industry. And uh, Leonora, in, in this week's magazine, you've been taking a look at what has actually performed best among funds and investment trusts over the years so far. Where should we have put our money in, in January? Yeah, well, there were four uh, really dominant themes um, across both um, investment trusts and um, open-ended fund. And um, these were Japan, Europe, UK and smaller companies, um, both in terms of the sectors that did best and the individual funds and investment trusts that did best. Um, now, there's some reasons for this, because I had a chat with quite a few analysts who've been looking back at things. And um, I think what they said was, um, you know, Europe and Japan have really benefited from quantitative easing in 2015 and there's expectations that they'll extend the programs. Um, and J- Japanese and European smaller companies obviously have more of a domestic focus than their large cap peers, so they're well positioned to capture this. Um, I think European data is generally positive, consumer confidence is recovering, um, and, and the currency is quite weak, which is good for exporters. So, um, yeah, and it's, it's a similar story with UK smaller companies. We had a good year, you know, earnings continue to grow, we're exposed to the UK economy, which is um, doing quite well at the moment, um, and they're not as sensitive to the stronger pound as some of their large cap peers. Um, so I think those will be, um, let's say, the general drivers um in this area. Um, perhaps um, another thing to mention is as well, obviously one of the things that hasn't been so good this year is, um, you know, commodity stocks. And typically commodity stocks are more focused in the large cap indices. Um, you know, perhaps another reason why um, smaller companies have done well. Um, I think turning to, you know, what did particularly well, in, in among open-ended funds, the best performer was Leg Mason Japan. Japan equity, and that rose 40% over 
the uh, first 11 months of 2015. Um, now, this is, um, I mean, it's a good fund, regardless of, you know, what's gone on over these 11 months. It's got a good, strong, long-term record. But um, I think what one of the um, advisors pointed out was it is a hugely volatile fund. So before you jump in there, uh, you know, thinking that it might do well, um, it has to be more in mind that some years this fund absolutely shoots up and some years it absolutely plummets. But it seems over the long term that the to have a bit more up and down. So it kind of stacks up to good numbers. In terms of... Um, investment trusts that did well um, among the top 10 performers um, quite a few UK investment trusts um, and these use SVM UK Emerging Fund JP Morgan Midcap British and American and um, Standard Life UK Smaller Companies these all, all did quite well um, and um, I think you know going ahead though I mean obviously we're going to have more on that in um uh, upcoming issues. I think people are reasonably confident um, Europe and Japan could do well but um, in terms of style, some analysts have, have pointed out that certainly in terms of the, the, the UK funds, they have quite a growthy style um, and this could go on for a while but um, if interest rates do rise, which it might in the UK following the US rise, growth might not be as in vogue mm-hmm. but that's you know, that's something a bit further out there. Well, I mean, a lot of a lot of um, investors will be trying to reposition their portfolios at this time of year. And one we will be featuring in Portfolio Clinic is Rod, who's 55, who holds more than a few funds. And in fact, his £2.5 million portfolio, lucky him, is spread across more than 100 assets. Um, Rod has said he wants to maximise growth in the run-up to retirement, but the over-diversification we felt was holding him back. Chris, you were one of the experts on this portfolio. And obviously lots of people will be thinking about how to rationalise their portfolio and range their assets better at this time of year. So um, what was your advice for Rod? Well, one thing that really interested me about this portfolio was the background risks that he was taking on, in that he had quite big investments in Spanish property and also in private equity. Now, those assets expose him to particular risks. Um, There's liquidity risk, the fact that you can't sell property or private equity very quickly at a decent price. There's also foreign exchange risk. If the euro collapses, then your Spanish property is worthless. And there's also cyclical risk. If we run into a recession, then private equity and property suffer. So one thing I think one should do when one is faced with risks like that is to use your financial assets to, to try and mitigate those risks. And depending on your risk aversion, this might argue for holding cash and bonds because these are liquid. Um, But it also, I think, argues for having larger defensive stocks. Um, And quite quite a few income funds actually offer that. I think it's very important when you're buying an income fund to check what exactly it holds because some of them expose you to cyclical risk, for example, if they're heavily weighted in miners. But quite a few others have nice defensive exposure because they're holding the likes of tobacco and utility companies. Uh, and, and those can be very useful in, in mitigating market risk and liquidity risk. Well, one of the suggestions for slimming down his portfolio, making it simpler, was to concentrate on those defensives, wasn't it? To yeah. make them the focus of the portfolio. Yes, yes. In, in, in this particular case, where you're taking on 
cyclical risk through your other assets anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing I like about defensives is that history tells us that around the world, they tend to outperform on average over the long run. So they're offering us something that shouldn't exist in theory, but which does exist in practice, namely relatively low risk, but relatively high return. And another thing he should do, given that background risk, and I don't normally recommend this, because uh, I think foreign exchange risk is is entirely unpredictable. But I I think there is a case for perhaps having some weighting in US dollar assets simply to mitigate the risk that the the euro declines and therefore he loses a packet on his his Spanish property. He had a huge amount in Spanish property, a development worth £800,000, he said. So that is a big chunk of his uh, assets. But shouldn't, shouldn't, shouldn't investors have US exposure anyway? Well, yes, that's, yes, yes as, yeah. as a rule. I mean, one way to simplify your portfolio is to have in mind that your default position should be to hold a global index tracker fund. You know, because if you're the average investor, then you should hold what the average investor holds, and the average investor, by definition, holds the global market. So, so yes, one, one should be exposed to the U.S. But most of us are exposed to the U.S. even if we don't own a single U.S. dollar uh, of U.S. shares, simply because if the U.S. market declines, then so so too will the U.K. one. Mm-hmm. So so it's, you know that that correlation there is is the sort of like like working like an exposure anyway. Um, I was going to ask you as well, Chris, about your ideas for your wish list of financial products that should exist but don't because this is actually my sadly my last podcast for investors chronicle before i move on to pastors new and i in reflecting on my eight years here i was actually thinking about how little real innovation we've actually seen over that time so chris what would be top of your wish list for next Um, year and new products well possibly at the top i would put house price futures Mm -hmm. Young people are complaining rightly that they can't get onto the housing ladder. Older people who are thinking of trading down might want to reduce their uh, exposure to to housing. Um, And therefore, there's a natural opportunity to trade. What should happen in theory is that younger people should be able to buy um, a house price future that protects them against the risk that house prices will rise and so become even more unaffordable. And people who are thinking of trading down, say because they want to retire in a few years' time, should want to go short of house price futures. So, in effect, insuring themselves against the risk that house prices fall. So there should, in theory, be quite an active market in house price futures. And there isn't. So why why doesn't that exist? Why why doesn't the industry innovate in a way that would benefit real people <laughs> um, well there's a problem with innovation in general not just in, in in financial markets and that is that it's very very difficult for producers to actually capture the full fruits of uh, innovation there was a wonderful paper written by william nordhaus at yale university 10 years ago in which he showed that of the innovation that's happened since about 1945 very, very little of it has translated into a rise in profits. The, the real beneficiaries uh, of innovation are, are customers and companies that come along later and, and, and replicate um, past innovations. 
Um, and because companies know this, they have a strong disincentive um, to, to, to innovate. And what the financial services industry has done is that it, it's come up with products that it can sell rather than products that genuinely benefit people. And the products that can sell are normally high-cost, high actively managed funds um, rather than more useful financial assets. And that problem is exacerbated by the fact that financial assets to a large extent are useful insofar as there's a big liquid market in them. But trying to get a financial product from, from scratch up to active and liquid is incredibly difficult. And it's not something that any individual firm can do on its own. Yeah, I mean, you, one of the products you, you mentioned was this social care insurance. So being able to insure against living a long time and having to have a long stay in a care, a long and expensive stay in a care home, for example. Yeah. Um, I mean, those kinds of, there were a few products around, but I'm, think, I'm guessing about 10 years ago now, but the, the market was very small and, and, and dwindled away. And, you know, it just seems that there's a huge need for that kind of product. But they, they, people said that they couldn't sell them very easily because people didn't want to think about that future ahead of them. Yeah, this is, this is another product problem with innovation. Sometimes it, you, you can be too far ahead of yourself. I suspect that nowadays, um, when people are feeling rather gloomier and rather older, there might be more of a market but people have been scared off um, but, but, but from innovating by their experience several years ago. You know, it, it, is, it is a genuinely difficult problem of actually marketing a product from scratch. And it's become harder down the years because the public are, let's face it rightfully, very sceptical about um, whether they're getting value for, for money from the financial services sector. And we encourage them to do just that as Investors Chronicle, don't we? So we're always talking about fund fees and value for money and co controlling costs and checking whether the product has value. So I suppose it's just um, a natural um, state of affairs. <laughs> I'm trying not to be too philosophical on my last podcast. But um, anyway, thank you very much to um, my colleagues, Kate Bearley, Leonora Walters and Chris Dillow. And I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. But if you want to keep in touch with me after I leave Investors Chronicle, then you can follow me on Twitter, where I am very simply at Moira O'Neill. You can read more about the top funds stories of 2015, predictions for 2016, whether you believe them or not, and the other stories that we've discussed in this show in today's issue of Investors Chronicle. Thank you very much for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.